but yeah. it is kind of amazing that that feeling of the new shiny thing is essential. You would think it would go away as you get older. No, the it shiny does not. things just get more expensive. <laughs> right. And shinier. Maybe that's the topic for today's podcast. <laughs> we, maybe we cachet that for, uh, for next time. The new shiny things just keep getting shinier. And more expensive. Brought to you by Chromium. <laughs> the free web browser that is super <laughs> shiny and free. <laughs> oh, <sighs> that's actually, I, I am going to mention Chrome a little bit today, but not really, not in any serious context. <sighs> but you have a whole thing that you want to talk about. So I guess we'll talk about that thing. Well, I mean, unless you want to just vamp the entire time. No, it's been a I'm... while since we've. <laughs> just completely gone off the rails <laughs> <laughs> we could talk i mean we could talk about the british open if you want to that would be a very short one-sided conversation cameron set a record he beat up tiger woods <laughs> with his fists not like physically no no he didn't like <laughs> chase him down the, the the fairway with the driver that would make for compelling television much more compelling than watching golf <laughs> apologies to all the golf listeners out there not really. I'm not scared of you. Clearly, you've a... never been smacked in the face with a golf club. Yet. Yet. There's always tomorrow. <laughs> no, no. I think we'll just... We'll save our in-depth conversation about the British Open for another time. Um, the only We'll save that, for the, save that for the theology pod. Oh, yes. Well... We, we do get into some murky philosophical territory there. So probably for the best. I guarantee people talk more about God on the golf course than they do in church. Every time you hit a bad shot, you hear Jesus Christ. God damn it. <laughs> hmm. And I bet they also, you know, thank the, uh, the, the Holy father every time they get it. You know, a bald That's actually true. on the That's whole. That's true. You're right. Both sides of the same coin. As a completely non-religious person, I may have done that in the past. <laughs> well, you have I to can. thank somebody. You do, and you know it wasn't you. <laughs> you don't want to admit it, but I mean, you you know. You know. Deep down, you know. <laughs> Hello, alleged human, and welcome to the Chaos Lever Podcast. My name is Ned, and I'm definitely not a robot. My mind canister is full of spongy, crenulated pink tissue, just like yours. I, too, am unable to recall events from the previous day with frightening accuracy. Yes, dear friend, I, too, am a deeply flawed version of sentience that will be quickly replaced during the robot uprising. You can trust me. With me is Chris, who is also here. Hi, Chris. Am I, though? Is, is anybody anywhere, man? What if we're all just a structured, imaginary construct in each other's reality? Whoa. I see where you're I know. It's, it's like Inception. Yeah. See, I, I watched um, Multiverse of Madness and took away all the wrong lessons, which is to say the lessons that the movie gave us. I, well, I was, ouch. See, I was going to say, were there any right lessons? How, how not to make a movie, apparently. How not to deal I mean, with the multiverse in any kind of ethical or responsible way. The main lesson I've gathered from the last couple of efforts is uh, pay attention to Wong. 
Yeah. You think he's going to be the linchpin? No, he's just the one that gives all the right answers. And Dr. Strange is like, nah, it'll be fine. <laughs> That's... I'm going to do this completely random and untrained thing instead. Yeah, you know. What's the worst I... that could happen? Even going back to the first Doctor Strange movie, Wong was always right. Yeah. That should be a meme There's a somewhere. reason he's the Sorcerer Supreme at the moment. Yes. Granted that the previous Sorcerer, Sorcerer Supreme was not great. In there a were some of flaws. Yeah. I have notes. As do I. Uh, there's a really, really good episode of... Oh, God, I forget which podcast channel it's on. I think it's on the Small Beans podcast, which if you're not familiar with that, it's Michael Swaim and Abe Epperson, formerly of Cracked, and they do this uh, epic analysis of Doctor Strange and why it actually reads like white supremacy. And I'm, I'm just going to leave it there. Go ahead and search through... <laughs> Uh, the Small Beans episodes, and it's there. And I think it's on their public feed, so you should be able to find it. And if I can find it, I'll put a link in the show notes. But really interesting analysis, even if you disagree with it in general. I think it's an interesting way to look at the movie and make it more relevant than it is as uh, just an MCU movie. Right. Right. So Why not? <laughs> why not? Let's um, deeply overthink this comic book concept that is kind of what we do oh yeah you're right yeah. but not always about pop culture because we are going to talk about some tech garbage so what have you some. been overthinking in the world of tech garbage chris so i have been overthinking the way that people use the cloud oh okay and it ties into a bunch of stuff that we've uh, talked about and actually some of it we've literally talked about on podcasts before so there'll be a number of shout outs to other oh my god this is going to be like marvel we're going to call out other podcasts look at that it's part of the uh, extended chaos lever universe the clu exactly because we have a clue or maybe we don't um and in general or in specific i guess so those two things are totally opposite in specific <laughs> is there a limit to the cloud hyperscaler future like I have a gut reaction to that, but I think I'm going to hold on to that. And, and is see. it that you just threw up in your mouth a little bit? Well, there was that too. Yeah, it was not a comfortable reaction. I'm, I'm, I'm I told you, I, I told you that putting wasabi on your blueberry muffin was a bad idea. But did I listen? Are you? Am I the Stephen Strange to your doc to your Wong? I, I think I am. I think so too. Yeah, I've been I, thinking I think that for years. I just didn't have the courage to say it. I appreciate that. Uh, but I've come to the realization on my own, which means the power was within me the whole time. And I can ignore wow. you. <sighs> Summed up the movie. She put in some very dramatic music over the background. <laughs> so anyway, the concept of the cloud hyperscaler, and especially that phrase, has started to get con uh, traction lately. And because of that, it has become what I think it's safe to say is Ned's favorite word. Love it. Every are you talking about hyperscaler or hypercloud? Hypercloud scaler, hyperscale the cloud. Okay, just hyper all the things. Yeah. Yes. I mean, the concept, or at least the way that I'm using it, is just the companies in the cloud space that have absolutely eye-wateringly massive scale. Mm. Okay. So there are more than three, but the big three that most audience members, especially in America, would understand is Google for 
GCP, Microsoft with Azure, and Amazon with AWS. Mm-hmm. I mean, I could say Oracle, but really, we would just be <laughs> kidding ourselves. <laughs> so the growth of these companies, these monster cloud companies, has been well covered to the point mm-hmm. that I think that the concept is just in people's minds as, if you're using the cloud, this is what you're going to do. What hasn't really been covered is what's been happening over the last decade or so, really, on the margins of the cloud economy. Um, because contrary to the wishes of Steve, Google, et cetera, um, there's actually a growing non-hyperscaler cloud economy. <gasps> I know. So I want to talk about a couple of things that are going on that I might, and I emphasize might because who the heck knows, affect the future growth of the hyperscalers in specific, and more importantly, how companies, small and large, consume cloud in general. Okay, I'm up for this. And before I start, I want to start with point zero, which is Mm. not technology, it's psychology. Okay. And that is, people get bored (laughs) with the technology that they have. (laughs) Wow, that... That really cycles back to the conversation we were having earlier about the new shiny. That's what sparked this this point zero. Um, and it makes a lot of sense. If you think about the history of technology, it's a lot like the history of fashion. Mm. Something comes into fashion, becomes the hot new thing. Then it becomes old and, t- and tired. Yep. They go into the brand new thing. Then that becomes old and tired. And everyone's like, why did we get away from the old thing in the first place? And then all of a sudden, Stranger Things is the most popular television show in the world. And Kate Bush has like a number one single that I don't think ever hit number one before. (laughs) So the easiest, I mean, the easiest example here is big, small, big, small, right? So you start with microcomputers, you go to mainframes, you go to PCs, bouncing back and forth between these types of technologies. Sure. And everybody can always make the argument that, oh, well, we got away from the old thing because the old thing didn't cut it anymore. Which if you follow that logic and you believe it, then that means that mainframes are irrelevant which I can name a couple of industries that are pretty critical to the operation of the world that use mainframes real good right now. Right. And, and they, there's still a place for mainframes. I think to a certain degree, it's just what is a mainframe has changed over time somewhat. That's true too. Um, and those technologies are always going to evolve and there will always be a space for them. But I think I just wanted to make the point that what happens is people get comfortable with something and they get overconfident about it and they get bored with it and want to do something else. Yes. You know, the other example I was going to use is physical PCs into uh, composable infrastructures like blade chassis back to a thousand disposable pizza boxes, which is where we're at right now. Right. In most cases, I mean, even the hyperscalers themselves use a million disposable pizza boxes. They so sure it's interesting do. how times have changed and how the, the, the trends roll through technology. And I think a lot of it has to do with that psychology of the new shiny thing, mm-hmm. as much as it is the better performance or faster cycling CPUs or more efficient um, cooling processes. Really, it just kind of is, this is new. I should do this now. Yeah, that definitely factors into it to a certain degree. I think you can see that there is a trail of uh, 
disposed technology, technology that had initial promise but was never widely adopted because you're, what you're kind of describing is the hype cycle. And yeah. whether or not that technology can get over that trough of disillusionment is really the determination whether it has staying power or not. And a right. lot of new and shiny technologies, you know, have those early adopters. Uh, and then the question gets asked by the, the bean counters, the people who actually care whether a thing makes it better or worse. And when those people get involved, we all crash into that trough. And sometimes the technologies just don't make it back out. It's like the La Brea tar pits. Somewhere, hundreds of word-perfect programmers are crying in recognition. Somewhere, there is a Microsoft Zune making its way down through the layers of tar. All right. So, anyway, <laughs> back to hyperscalers and where they might end up being limited. Um, so actual point number one, just like when Ned was wrong about this concept on Steven's podcast, um, on-premise podcast, the multi-cloud is inevitable. Now, vendors are going to use many, many clouds, period. Yes. Yes, they are. <laughs> okay. So that, I just want to put this out there. Listen to the podcast when it, I don't even think that episode has dropped yet, but it should pretty soon. Oh, I forgot. To, I'm a time traveler. Oh, good, Where absolutely. I came from, it did. Well, and we it's doing there, great. So <laughs> It's doing great. But what I want to point out about that is the idea behind the podcast is that we take a premise and we argue it, and someone had to take the devil's advocate position because everyone was agreeing multi-cloud was inevitable. And I was like, I will argue against it, even though I've been on a separate podcast where, where our podcast, where I argued for it <laughs> for uh, a solid half an hour. Nope, I disagree. I was right and you were wrong. Anyway. Okay. Moving on. So one trouble, one big piece of trouble is the concept of a single cloud means limiting your choices. It means you are not a cloud computing consumer. It means you're an AWS consumer or whatever one you choose, mm -hmm. which is going to be fine for a lot of companies. There's a ton of advantage to having just that one vendor, the ever famous one throat to choke. And in perhaps the only case where this can ever be remotely true, one single pane of glass to manage from, everybody drink. Hello. Uh, usually, this can only work long term, though, in one way. A hard line is set by management. And by that, I mean a CEO or the like goes on blast and says, we are an Azure shop, and that's the end of the conversation. Make it work. I don't care. Mm -hmm. Done. This is not ideal, but it can happen in the real world. I mean, sure. the single cloud approach does have a lot of advantages, not just from an IT perspective. First of all, if you're bundling all of this stuff together, you might get a discount or an enterprise agreement. You've got to be of significant scale, but this kind of discount can happen. Mm -hmm. And you know how finance likes a discount. <laughs> they sure do. So while the advantages are financial and managerial, uh, it puts you into a hole when it comes to the technology itself. Because one thing that can happen is, even in the hyperscaler space, one might have a feature the other doesn't. Mm. Or the feature is expressed in a different way that is easier for your IT team to manage, whether that is because of historical uh, preference or you brought somebody on that's just a crackerjack AWS person and you're an Azure shop. Mm -hmm. 
it can happen. Or that feature can be cheaper because they are price sensitive to one another. Yes. And if you're using a small amount of storage and a large amount of virtual desktops or vice versa, there might be a cost justification for using the other cloud. A really good example of that, and you brought it up in your notes, is AWS workspaces versus Azure desktop. And the reason right. that is particularly relevant is because Microsoft has the ability to bundle in the Windows licensing to use your existing enterprise agreement. And you cannot do that on AWS. So right. in effect, on AWS, you are paying for both compute and a Windows license. Whereas on Azure Desktop, you could be paying for just compute as far as Azure goes, because you've already paid the Windows license through some other means. Right. And I mean, with AWS Workspaces, you can do a bring your own licensing thing, but it's not the same program. Right. And it's not the same level of discount because AWS is not Microsoft. And now you're in a situation where you get agreement from both sides of the house. The technical people want to go this way and the accountants are going to be very, very happy that you're saving them money. And, you know, they're probably all still real mad about the macro situation in Microsoft <laughs> Office. So you really want to be nice to the accountants right now. <laughs> True. So you start to recognize that features exist outside of the unilateral decision of a single cloud. Mm -hmm. It doesn't just open you up to the other mass macro players. Okay. It opens you up to the mini clouds or the specialized players or the boutique providers. Mm -hmm. And if your eyes are open and you're, and you're willing to look at things like feature sets and cost differentials, this starts to make a ton of sense, especially now that we have let these guys run for like say a decade or more and prove their technology out and prove their SLAs and whatnot. So instead of just extending your infrastructure into two hyperscalers instead of one, you can take a look at little tiny guys that do the one thing that's different that you might need outside of what AWS or Azure can provide. Okay. Great place to start, IaaS. Everybody loves IaaS. Virtual machines right. running on someone else's computer. Woohoo! You've got cloud providers here that you've already heard of, or at least not you, then your ironic teenager has heard of. These are like the vultures or the digital oceans. Um, mm -hmm. IaaS players that are intended for tiny shops that don't need the scope of services a hyperscaler provides. And they can, call, they can provide a huge cost benefit. Huge. Yes. Talking $5 a month for a running virtual machine types of costs. That is a cost mm -hmm. benefit that AWS and Azure will absolutely never touch. That's true. So you got a couple I of reasons. A good, I have an example of this just because I remember when, when we were still working uh, at the bar, uh, we were trying to work with various organizations to do cloud migrations or, or get them off of their current platform. And I remember pricing out how much it would cost to run what was essentially a VPS on something like Azure or AWS, so a virtual private server. And the cost differential between where they were currently running and running it on AWS was like 10x the cost. 
Right. Yes, you get all the benefits of the AWS platform, but if you're not using any of them, just keeping your VPS instance on, you know, one of these mini clouds does save you a com like a ridiculous amount of money. And there was no way I could justify to them doing that migration. I was like, no, you should just stay where you are. <laughs> right. Maybe put your, uh, your 404 page on like a static website in S3 or something. But beyond that, you're good. Yeah. And S3 is a great point because another site that exists that people might have heard a little bit about is Wasabi. Mm. This is an IaaS solution provider. And all they do is provide cloud storage. Just cloud storage at scale. I mean, we're talking petabytes of scale is available to you. At mm -hmm. prices that they advertise as 80% less than S3. And they have one amazing feature that AWS will never have. Yes, they do. They don't charge egress fees. What? True. So that's wild. It because is. Because you know who does charge egress fees? All the hyperscalers? Everybody. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, I think Cloudflare recently announced um, an S3-like service. I think they call it R2 because, you know, why not? <laughs> yeah. Please. Like, uh, naming is hard. It's fine. Um, but I think they also do not charge egress fees on R2 as well. You have to check my math on that. But, yeah, that's definitely a thing that people are pointing at S3 and going, if 90% of your fees are egress fees, just move over to our platform and that just goes away, especially for S3 compatible. Right. It's a crazy differentiator that is going to have whoever the heck is in charge of AWS now tearing out their hair eventually. Yeah. So let's, I mean, you can still say that these are like, quote, startup companies, which is weird because they've been around for 10 years, but whatever. If you want something that's bigger, more enterprisey, but still has another thing that we'll get to, the personal touch. There's a Philadelphia area company called Linode or Linode or Linode that might be right for you. Um, I'm sure there's a correct way to pronounce their name. I'm still mad at them for not giving me a second interview, so I'm not going to follow up with that information at all. That is fair. Now, small bullet, your mileage may vary because they did recently get acquired by Akame. So who knows what's going to happen? But at now... They have 11, what they refer to as enterprise grade data centers spread around the world, a robust customer support arm and commitment, and a lot of developer success stories. I mean, mm -hmm. we're talking about really big companies here, companies that are not running one server standalone on Vulture. Yes. Um, now, they are not for everyone. They are primarily IaaS with just a little bit of database management tools and database hosted. But that's basically it. Mm -hmm. uh, and they are famously, quote, by developers for developers. Yes. So everybody smells like Red Bull. <laughs> um, and they have, you know, focused on CICD, that type of uh, DevOps deployment model. So tons of tooling and tons of integrations. Mm -hmm. um, for now, they're hosting applications and aggressive price advantages against the IaaS, similar to, but not quite as low as Vulture. You're not getting a $5 a month server from Linode, right. but you're still not paying $40 like you would at AWS or Azure. Right. When I was looking to host my WordPress site, uh, I went through a company called Cloudways that actually rolls up multiple IaaS providers and gives you a choice mm -hmm. of which one you want to deploy on. And Ooh. Vulture was there. 
uh, DigitalOcean was there, Linode was there, and so was AWS. And I believe Vulture was the cheapest, but I think I ended up yes. going with Linode for a couple features that, that were available that Vulture option didn't have. So it right. made sense to me. But yeah, it was, I was like, hey, look at all these options. And AWS was by far the most expensive. <laughs> and that brings me to the other point about these smaller um, boutique type of shops. And that is customer service. Hmm. Linode has 11 enterprise grade data centers. They've got like 250 employees of which like a third of them are customer service. Mm -hmm. So you get a connection and a, a relationship with customer service that you're never going to touch at Microsoft or AWS, who historically, especially Microsoft over the past couple of years, their customer service has gotten worse and worse and worse. Indeed. Smaller boutique shops mean something crazy could happen. Like say, oh, I don't know, talking to the same tech support person more than once. <laughs> Talking to a human at all. Really, yeah, that stuff really helps. I mean, if you have a tech that is familiar with your business, chances are they're going to be able to help you get to a resolution faster. Mm -hmm. Unless you're paying like a million a month, getting good tech support from Microsoft is not possible. Right. And especially for the smaller boutique shops that may not have a whole team of IT folks who are highly experienced troubleshooting the issue, it's going to be one harried person sitting in a back office going, why won't it just work? Right. They need help. Yeah. <laughs> what you end up with when you try to call Microsoft is the old cycle of somebody asks you the same six questions, your call gets forwarded, you ask answer the same six questions again, your mm -hmm. call gets forwarded, repeat, rinse, repeat, rinse, and then the call gets dropped. Yes. That all sounds correct. So that's bad. And especially if you are a small to medium business, you might need a little bit more uh, of that type of care and feeding and soft touch and understanding from a customer service representative mm -hmm. that you're just not going to get from one of the big players. So pivoting, IaaS in general, but what about if you have a business that has a real specific need, like a real specific need? Mm -hmm. There are cloud products that exist to serve customers that only exist in a specific vertical. For example, there's a company called MedStack. And this is actually a tough one to Google because there's like 10 companies called MedStack. But the one that I'm talking about provides cloud-based services for digital health applications and provides guaranteed PHI protection under HIPAA. Guaranteed. That, those are That's some like heavy when words. You do, that is like when you do your taxes if you do it through TurboTax, there's a button at the end you can click that says, I would like audit protection. Mm -hmm. You pay an extra $70. And if you get audited, TurboTax handles it for you. MedStack, if you run your app there, you're paying a little extra probably, but what you're getting is a product that is specifically built for HIPAA environments. And they will take the heat if you get sued by the government for a HIPAA violation. All right now. Then. Can you build an environment in Azure or AWS that is fully and robustly protected under HIPAA? Of course you can. That's what they did. <laughs> there, exactly. But still, there is something to be said for the simplicity of, hey, MedStack, this is what I want to do. And mm -hmm. MedStack goes, awesome, because that's what we do. Right. Especially a small company or a startup or uh, a spinoff or a skunk works. Why should we as company X reinvent the HIPAA wheel? 
Don't do it. So I think this in particular is an area that's going to have legs. HIPAA is the, the biggest and most popular example, but it's by far, it's not by the only one mm-hmm. by far. We can just cut and paste and make all those into a sentence that's actually in row in yes, order. Right? I, I could do that. I shan't, <laughs> but I could. Other companies exist in verticals that aren't about strong regulation. So for example, there's a company called Island. Island exists as an IaaS cloud nearly exclusively meant for disaster recovery and business continuity. Hmm. You can run your production environment there if you want to. You're not gonna. That's not what they're meant for. Or let's go back to that AWS workspace as your desktop. VDI is a really big freaking deal. Mm -hmm. There's been some things that have been happening over the past couple of years that have made it come to the forefront a little bit more. I don't know what you're talking about. I don't either, really. All right. Setting up VDI in one of the hyperscalers, even though they have been working real hard to make it easy, is still a pain. So to me, this feels like an opportunity for another company to figure it out, make it simple, make it user-friendly and cost-competitive, and they will naturally steal business in the same way that I imagine MedStack did. As someone who's in the middle of writing course number three in a six-course learning path on Azure Virtual Desktop, I agree with the sentiment. (laughs) And I know there are some people in the audience standing up and saying, well, what about Citrix Cloud? (sighs) I said simple. (laughs) Still... I laugh so I don't cry. (laughs) (laughs) Just as a point of conversation, though, it's a tight race overall. But even now, even with all of the insanity that Citrix provides, Gartner's customer review site shows that Citrix is superior to AWS when it comes to application delivery. That's not a Gartner analysis. That is customer response. Hmm. And looking at retail pricing, and this gets... Tough. So we're going to do some back of the uh, back of the napkin stuff right now. Mm-hmm. Citrix Workspaces is eighteen dollars a month if you sign a three year contract for basically the full set of features in Citrix Cloud. Twenty three dollars a month if you're doing it pay as you go. AWS Workspaces charges slightly differently. It's based on the VM that you're using per user, with the cheapest and poorest performing starting at twenty five dollars per month retail. And we go back to the conversation you and I had before. That's if you need AWS to license your Windows. If you have to go the other way, things get a little wonky, but I don't want to go all solutions architect here because I want to respect myself in the morning. But I think you respect yourself now. <laughs> arrogance versus self-confidence. What? what? Comparing them, Citrix is cheaper. Yes. So... That's something to think about. Indeed. And also Citrix, like I said, the Citrix Workspaces environment brings a whole bunch of other features like a VPN environment, actual desktops, applicate, individual application delivery, that if you go mm-hmm. through AWS Workspaces, you have to do add-ons or you have to do something differently. So different strokes depending on what your technology team needs. But again, if you're going price performance, I can't believe I'm saying this out loud, <laughs> Citrix is cheaper. Shocking. Shocking. So I apologize if this has come across as a subsection that should have been titled a bunch of cloud companies that Christopher has heard of. 
But my hypothesis here is that the number of companies like this that are boutique and specific and have a price performance advantage are going to increase, mm -hmm. not decrease. Yes, I, I agree with that thought. And the concept is already happening in another world that is dominated by a few huge players. And that is internet searching. As Google search results continue to diminish in value, boutique search engines are starting to make more and more sense. Like this is a Wolfram Alpha situation for normal human beings. I see, okay. In Google's case especially, it's a problem that the hyper search engines have brought upon themselves. And why is that? Because they monetize via ads, mm -hmm. which means that quality curation of search results has become less important than ever because they're giving the great real estate, the famous first page of Google, over to advertisers. Mm -hmm. This is a huge reason why a lot of search results that people are actually going after stop being just a Google search and the Google search ends with site colon reddit.com or site colon ycombinator.com. They don't trust what Google says anymore. They're looking to a specific website. Boutique search engines are taking that a step further and saying, if you're searching for medical information, search here. If you're searching for sports information, search here. Because people implicitly don't trust the Google on its own anymore. And rightly so. <laughs> I'm not saying that. Google is sitting there individually putting their thumb on the scale for different searches because that's insane. They can't do that. But what they are doing is they're training their algorithm to push sites that are more ad friendly. And they're also, like you said, giving away the good real estate to ads to begin with. If you think about the Google page, the search results page from 10 years ago versus the search results page that you see now, they are different. And the main difference is, more ads. Right. And the problem is, I mean, astroturfing on social media or everywhere else on the internet is also a problem. But the fact is, if they pay for ad space, they're getting time on Google. Yep. Which is annoying. But anyway, that wasn't the point. The point is the boutique searches are trying to get around that. And a, more, a smaller, more narrow product is going to make a lot of sense for people, mm -hmm. just like the hypercloud situation or the hyperscaler situation that... I allegedly is the, the subject of this particular episode. <laughs> well, maybe we can come back around to that and get to your third point uh, of why you think that the huge cloud players will have some competition. Yeah, and this one, I mean, really, this could have been a lightning round item, but since it's so on topic, I'm, I'm including it here. Okay. And while nothing has happened yet, the Wall Street Journal is concerned. So obviously, everybody should be. Sure. Recently, the European Union laid down some rather surprising rulings that went very hard against the very idea of hyperscaling. The Digital Markets Act was passed on July 5th in the EU and is the latest attempt to rein in anti-competitive and monopolistic moves made by these huge players. For example, in news that should be surprising to absolutely no one, Microsoft is in the crosshairs due to their dominant positions in the operating system and office productivity spaces. Now, far be it for me to remind people of Microsoft's rich and varied history of abusing exactly this position repeatedly in the past. Let's just say that as of what it stands right now, the EU is concerned. In short, it's a vendor lock-in and bundling issue. 
Now, the Digital Markets Act was really targeting companies like Apple in the sense that they might be forced to follow, allow third-party app stores into their ecosystem, something they have been vehemently against for decades. How does this apply to the hyperscalers? Think bundling. Hmm. Companies will not be able to give preferential treatment to their own products. And while this is directly aimed at apps and ads, it can be applied to the clouds. Azure plus Office 365. Yep. It's not 100% clear where the policy will land on this thing, but it's alarming enough that all the usual major miscreants, Google, Apple, Facebook, etc., are furiously writing policy position papers on the matter. What would end up happening? In extreme cases, the theory goes that the law could mandate the breakup of the companies in crosshairs, with Google's ad business being the case's prime example. Mm. It's important to note that this is not explicitly targeted at cloud computing, but there are a lot of people concerned, you know, because of the implication. Indeed. And as a result, as is tradition, there are similar bills making their way around Congress in the United States. Now, considering that nothing actually gets done in Congress anymore, it's likely that any changes will take years to happen. But it's enough to make a lot of buyers think twice about the strategy they want to take when it comes out to laying their cloud infrastructure. Because guess what else takes years to happen? Laying out a cloud infrastructure. Yes, that is not a, not a quick thing to do unless you're a very small company. So who knows? You know, one thing that we haven't talked about much is private cloud. Maybe this is finally going to be the year of OpenStack. As it ever Ned, has stop been. Crying. As it ever Ned, stop crying. stop <laughs> crying. I laugh so I don't cry. <laughs> lightning around. All lightning? All lightning all the time. Fetch a free FIDO key with AWS. Fancy getting one of those physical MFA keys but don't want to pay for it? I have good news for you. AWS has been offering free MFA keys since 2021, and now you can order the key directly through the AWS console. If you have spent at least $100 on an AWS account for three consecutive months, you can order the key at no charge, which shouldn't be difficult to achieve if you are using AWS in any serious capacity. If you're simply hosting a static website on S3 to mock your co-host, well, that might not quite hit $100, 95 cents a month last I checked. The key AWS sends you is a physical key that plugs into your computer's USB port and supports the FIDO2 protocol. When you perform an action requiring MFA, the console will prompt you to tap your key, assuming it is already present, as proof of the something you have. Since the key is FIDO2 compliant, you can use it across other services as well, such as Dropbox, G Suite, Azure, etc. Personally, I've been using the Google Auth app to generate OTPs for most of my MFA needs since I'm not sure how much additional security a physical key actually gives you, and adding in the fact that I tend to lose small and sometimes very large things on a regular basis, this probably isn't the solution for me. But I bet some ultra-paranoid types, Red Chris, would find the physical key a bomb for their security-driven soul. 
Whatever, dude. All my homies use YubiKey. Represent. Linux Unix text editor Vim has first major version release in three years. Somehow there's a controversy. Now, I know what you're thinking. How could there possibly be controversy around a text editor? <laughs> Furthermore, it's 2022. How can there even be updates for a text editor? All great questions. So the last major release of Vim was way back in 2019 with their version 8.2. Between then and now, the product has been updated with, <sighs> can I believe I'm saying this out loud, an internal scripting language intended to, quote, drastically improve performance by mirroring commonly used programming languages such as <sighs> JavaScript. Node.js strikes again. You can build out functions, declare and utilize variables, and other things I had no idea people wanted to do in a CLI text editor. Alongside all of this is a huge amount of community consternation about the way these updates were done. Primary project owner and contributor, Bram Molenar? He is Dutch, cut me a break. He has not been hugely inviting of community contributions. In fact, there have been accusations of Bram copying proposed changes into his own Git branch, so when the change was promoted, he would get the credit. Additionally, there were compatibilities that were being dropped in Vim 9, mostly around the idea of Lua plugins. These are supported in a hard branch of Vim called NeoVim, but some of the changes in 9.0 were made in a specifically non-NeoVim compatible way. This, of course, would be the programmer equivalent of taking one's ball and going home. Why anyone would want all of this complexity in a text editor continues to vex me. I would have thought that a proper IDE would have been the obvious next step. And again, people still non-ironically use Emacs. So what do I know? HTTP3, now a standard, awkward slash and all. And if you're the type of person who is thinking, wait, there was an HTTP2 standard? Don't worry, you're not alone. And this is not a web 2.0 situation. And HTTP3 has nothing to do with web 3 in no small part because HTTP3 is a standard developed by rational people to accomplish something useful and Web3, well, shrug emoji, shrug emoji, shrug emoji. So what is new in HTTP3 and why did we need a new standard anyhow? For a bit of context, HTTP3 is the formalization of a standard started by Google called QUIC. Q-U-I-C, or Quick UDP Internet Connections, which was intended to try and speed up the transfer of data over the internet and specifically HTTP traffic. Eagle-eared listeners, sidebar, do eagles have good hearing? Maybe we go with bats. They definitely do. Bat-eared listeners may have noticed the UDP in the Quick acronym, which is itself an acronym for User Datagram Protocol one of two common protocols used to transmit data across a network, the other being TCP or Transmission Control Protocol. Traditional HTTP uses TCP to establish connections between the server and client using a complicated three-way handshake to create sessions and transmit information. 
While it does include a lot of fancy features like retries, throttling, and congestion control, TCP adds significant overhead to the HTTP conversation. UDP, on the other hand, simply blasts information from the server to the client and hopes the info gets there. Quick makes use of UDP for the transmission protocol and handles things like packet loss, acknowledgments, and traffic management further up the stack. Oh, and it uses TLS by default all the time, which Chris has assured me is a good thing, trademark. Most modern browsers, and especially Chrome, already support HTTP3, as do CDNs like Fastly and Cloudflare. Native libraries and web servers built for HTTP3 are a bit more sparse, but now that HTTP3 is a standard, you can expect those to be built out shortly. What do you have to do as a web consumer? Nothing. Enjoy the faster internet. You're welcome. Netflix chooses Microsoft as their advertising partner. You have to hand it to the flicks. They are absolutely not clever or sly. In 2019, Reed Hastings confidently said Netflix would never do ads, and I quote, period. No one believed him. Mm -mm. Back in March of this year, their CFO confidently stated that the company had, quote, no plans for advertising, period. Nobody believed him either. So to the surprise of absolutely no one, they're rolling out an ad-supported tier and have interestingly chosen Microsoft as the ad provider. Hmm. The move to ads was inevitable given Netflix's chronic overspending and short-sighted programming choices. I will never forgive you for Hubie Halloween, no matter how long you live. <laughs> the decision to go with Microsoft, however, is interesting. Microsoft has an ad campaign, but it famously trails Google in revenue by a huge amount. Microsoft bringing in around $3 billion per quarter is good until you compare it to the Googs $55 billion. What Microsoft doesn't have, at least at the moment, is a video streaming platform. So the thought is, by going with Google, they would run the risk of Google still preferring their own content over Netflix's when searching was happening. Now, not that any major tech company would engage in that kind of probably illegal self-dealing, <laughs> Amazon's basics. With Microsoft, it doesn't matter. It's not a problem. Netflix just became the most important thing in the Microsoft ad business. Not a terrible place to be. There's also a very interesting blind article out there that thinks that this could be a trial balloon for an eventual Microsoft-Netflix merger. Because like I said, Microsoft doesn't have anything equivalent in size or capability to YouTube yet. Yet. He's a 10, but has object deserialization vulnerabilities. Netrix's auditor software has a vulnerability that could allow for an active directory compromise. The CVE scored a 9.96, which is bad. Yes, bad. An enterprising security researcher was running an Nmap scan against a server with the Netrix auditor software installed and discovered that it was listening on port 9004 with an insecure.net remoting service. By sending properly structured data to the port, the researcher was able to execute arbitrary commands on the remote system using the account of the auditor service. 
This was due to a bug in .NET, which has since been patched and included in the latest version of the Auditor software. Since the Netrix Auditor software tends to run using a highly privileged domain account, it could serve as an attack vector to infiltrate an Active Directory domain and secure a foothold for future attacks. If you happen to be running Netrix Auditor in your organization, now might be a good moment to pause the podcast and make sure you're up to date on your patches. Elon Musk's lawyers continue to enrich themselves by arguing in bad faith over the Twitter deal. So, Elon tried to take his ball and go home. Mm. It turns out that in legal parlance, not only did he not actually have the ball, he doesn't have any legs. <laughs> As we discussed last week, the muskinators huffing and puffing about the spam bots led to him claiming that the contract was invalid and was going to be canceled. Twitter summarily sued, claiming breach of contract and requested a four-day trial beginning in September. Musk's legal team, no strangers to floating legal strategies as sturdy as a papier-mâché parachute, are trying to delay until 2023, claiming that the case is of a, quote, enormous magnitude. This is, of course, quote, enormous bullshit, as the case is, one, actually pretty simple, and two, the Delaware Chancery Court does not suffer fools and does not like sitting around doing nothing. As you will remember, Elon is a fool. Foolish enough to have replied on Twitter, hilariously enough, to a breakdown of the situation with a poop emoji. Mm -hmm. Once more for the people in the back, Elon, titan of industry, person who's addicted to plastic surgery, responded to the CEO of Twitter online, in public with a poop emoji. Incidentally, this exchange has made it into Twitter's court filing as <laughs> evidence that Musk has consistently behaved unprofessionally and in bad faith. Additionally, even though the amounts of money are large, $44 billion is nothing to sneeze at, the case itself is actually pretty simple. This is because of Elon's impatience and stupidity. He put himself over this barrel. Now, if you want to know thoroughly exactly how hosed Elon is here, I recommend the latest Legal Eagle breakdown of the case. It's 25 minutes of just gloriousness. Pure gold. No matter how many increasingly desperate and pathetic man-childy Twitter tantrums we, the blameless spectators, must endure. The two most realistic outcomes of this situation are Elon pays the $1 billion in damages if Twitter allows it, unlikely, or Elon is going to be forced to pony up $44 billion for a company that I must continue to remind you he was never serious about owning in the first place. Oh, it's so glorious and yet so sad because that means Twitter is going to be owned by a CEO who actively hates it. Well, I mean, think about it this way. Twitter's already used by a customer base that actively hates it. So <laughs> yeah, yeah. Okay. <laughs> it follows then. It's kind of like poetry, you know, it rhymes. It does. 
Hey, thanks for listening or something. I guess you found it worthwhile enough if you made it all the way to the end, so congratulations to you, friend. You accomplished something today. Now, go find the nearest carnival, get a funnel cake, and watch the cotton candy machine spin saccharin into magic. You've earned it. You can find me or Chris on Twitter at Ned1313 and at Hainer80, respectively, or follow the show at Chaos underscore Lever if that's the kind of thing you're into. Show notes are available at ChaosLever.com if you like reading things, which you should not. Funnel Cake is superior to cotton candy in every conceivable way. We'll be back next week to see what fresh hell is upon us. Ta-ta for now. You're not going to say anything about my cotton candy funnel cake hot take? That's not a hot take. That's just science. Fair enough. Cotton candy is dumb.